Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Do you remember what Paul's saying in this chapter? He's going hard against that group in the church who are so severe and religious that they impose laws on everyone else as the way of being a believer. In particular for them, circumcision was a big thing. And Paul says, that's not right. And then he says, look, this is the way I live my life. My heart is obsessed with and passionate about Jesus Christ. And he says, I count everything as loss, remember, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing him. That's what real Christianity looks like. It's not about do this, do that, and do the other. It's about a heart that is totally captivated by Jesus. Then he leads in and he says from verse 12, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. How comforting to read that from one of the most influential Christians in history. He could look at his own life and say, I have not arrived. But he says, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. I want to start with this assumption that Most people who call themselves Christians fully acknowledge that you may not be there. Not all of us are necessarily there. But for most people who call themselves Christians, there is a a desire, at least, an aspiration to be a passionate Christian and to be um, someone who is living for God wholeheartedly. Um, Most of us might look at our lives and say, we're either not there or we're not there in certain aspects of our lives, but even then, There's a desire to be there, isn't there? I hope that's true of you. And that there is something that that, that just resonates in your heart. You think, I would love to be red hot for Jesus. But maybe you you struggle, you're not there. And I want to just put my finger on a couple of issues that I think hold us back. Two great enemies to living for Christ with passionate zeal. One of them is, is what Paul's been wrestling with in these verses that came before, which he calls spiritual legalism. So a kind of heaviness of faith and religion that entangles you, weighs you down, and saps all the joy out of faith. So do you remember the image of David when he went to fight Goliath on the battlefield? He was quite a young boy. Probably his man strength hadn't come in. That hits when you're 25, Um, This is scientific, by the way. When you're 25, that's when you begin to really get your man strength as a a man. And he was a young guy. And um, uh, there he was on the battlefield about to face Goliath. And Saul, the king, says, wear wear my armor. And David tries it on. And you get the impression he's sort of clunking around in this armor that's that's too big for him. I mean, Saul was known to be a tall man. King Saul, and David's there, and it just doesn't fit him. And he feels way down. He feels like he's not free. He feels like he can't run onto a battlefield and take Goliath on. And he he wants to take the whole thing off. In a way, that's not the point of the passage. But in a way, it's kind of a picture of what it feels like when people become Christians and they enjoy an element of freedom. And then you start to feel all these do this, do that piled onto you. And you feel hindered and encumbered with 
other people's definitions of what living the Christian life looks like so that you feel like David in armor. Or another picture is like, you know, we have these images on our TV screens. Whenever there's a, an oil spill from a tanker that just the slick spreads across the surface of the ocean and onto the beaches. And one of the saddest things you see is all the birds that get covered in this oil to the point where, you know, there's no way that they can fly. And so they're going to starve, they're going to die. And this is what religion can be like for people, what it is like for people. That a religious mindset, a legalistic mindset, is something which smothers you with, with heaviness and death. And that might be what's put you off faith to begin with, because you've looked on and you said, these people are not happy, they're not joyful, they're not free, and I don't want any of that. Or maybe you've tasted some of that and and run a a million miles away and said, I don't want this, this isn't joy, this isn't life, this isn't freedom, and I have to agree with you, it isn't. Which is why when Paul said, look out for the dogs, look out for the, how does he put it, those who mutilate the flesh, the evildoers, he's talking about people who try and slick you with oil, who try and put stuff on you and, and define that's what religion looks like. And he said, you've got to get away from that because it's heavy, it's joyless, it leads to spiritual pride. It makes, you, it, it makes you die, really, from the inside out. Then, on the other hand, there's another type of person who isn't marked by spiritual legalism, but ra- rather marked by kind of spiritual laziness, where there is no real progress going on in the Christian life. And uh, whatever the causes of this, I think we all recognize it in our own lives and recognize it in, sometimes in whole churches or even whole, you know, it can, it can mark the majority of Christians in whole nations, that there's this, I don't know, this kind of, maybe a diminishment, first of all, in the fear of who God is. That God is smaller in our eyes and Therefore, no real fear of God in the heart, no sense of urgency to obey him, a kind of apathy that grips the heart and turns into a lukewarmness and a fruitlessness in life and a stagnancy that you're going nowhere and doing nothing and not really a disciple of Jesus in any recognizable sense. And these are two different things. They're probably more related than we realize, but you have spiritual legalism and you have spiritual laziness and I I don't know if you agree with this but my assessment is that the spiritual legalist hasn't understood in the words God loves me they haven't understood the love of God that God loves me they haven't grasped that God loves me and the joy and freedom that comes from that but the person who's spiritually lazy has not grasped who God is they don't get that it's God who loves me in all his holiness, in all his might, in all his transcendence, in all his complete um, otherness, that he's so far above us. And God is too familiar to you as a, as without the fear of God in your heart. And what I want to ask is, well, how do we avoid these sort of twin pitfalls that we can grow in might and zeal in passion for God without ever tripping into legalism on the one hand or this kind of laziness on the other hand. And I believe that the answer is already here in this passage. And what I want to describe to you is a kind of grace-fueled effort. Grace-fueled exertion, passion and work that needs to be applied in the Christian life. I don't want you to think that we're slipping back into a kind of legalistic way of thinking. 
This isn't about how you get saved. Salvation is a free gift. But there is something in how you grow in the Christian life that does call on you to to do certain things or to avail yourself of God's benefits in certain ways. So while I don't want us to feel that, I'm really hoping and praying that in, in what we're talking about today, that you don't live here feeling heavier in any way. I want you to feel motivated and excited and full of joy. Because I think you and I would all agree that there is space for us to grow, isn't there, in our faith. And if you then think, well, there's nothing I can do. It just happens to me by God's grace. Then I think you've come to a wrong conclusion. I think what Paul shows us here is that there, is a, there, are, there are things that you and I need to run towards to grow in godliness. That we need to summon our will and energy towards if we want to be more like Jesus. And if we want to attain all that he's called us to. Does that make sense to you? How do we do that? Do you even want that? I want to talk to you about grace for your past, grace for your future, and grace for your now. And hope that through the window of what Paul says here about his own spiritual life, we're going to walk out here with a few more keys to how we're going to, how we're going to live radiant, passionate, radical lives for Jesus. Let me begin with this. Grace for your past. Paul um, says it here in verse 13. He says, brothers, he's talking about how he just hasn't arrived. And he says, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. Now, I've taken immense encouragement from this verse over the years because again and again, it encourages me that there's still more to come and that I don't need to dwell in the past. There's a kind of looking backwards, which is helpful in the Christian life. Looking back at what God's done for you that produces gratitude. Looking back at his faithfulness that produces trust in him and faith in him. But friends, there's also a really bad way of looking backwards in the Christian life. A way that produces guilt. A way that produces complacency. A way that produces bitterness. All kinds of ugly things when you're a kind of person who's looking back in the Christian life. Uh, one preacher called Kent, uh, Kent Hughes tells a story to help us understand this. Where he, he tells a story of... Um, Two runners, uh, Roger Bannister and John Landy. They were the two men, I think they were the first two men, certainly Bannister was, to break the four-minute mile, to run a mile in under four minutes. And they were set for the race of the century against one another. I know at every athletics tournament, everyone says this is the race of the century, but arguably this really was. These guys were set to go head-to-head in 1954 at what was then called the British Empire Games. I'm assuming it's kind of related to the Commonwealth Games. But anyway, they were going against one another in 1954. Bannister was English. John Landy was from New Zealand. And of course, there's an intense rivalry between the nations on many sporting fronts. And these guys were both both understood and recognized to be just the best runners in the world. And Bannister set his own tactic that he was going to, there was four laps around the athletics track, and on the third lap he was going to sit back and then release it all in the fourth lap. But within about 200 meters of the beginning of the race, John Landy had, had, had just rocketed ahead and was leading the pack. And by the third lap, he wasn't letting up at all, and the gap was widening with John Landy out front, and then maybe five to ten yards, and you can look this up on YouTube actually, with Roger Bannister running behind. And he realized at that point that he would never catch him unless he started to 
to step on the gas, as it were, and really exert himself. And he, he ran and ran and ran. And, it, and Kent Hughes tells the story of how there was this moment in the final lap, a famous moment, when coming towards the very final strides, Landy could not hear Bannister's footsteps behind him. And he made the mistake of turning around to check where Bannister was. And in those moments, Bannister accelerated and propelled right past Landy and ended up beating him by about five yards to the roar of the crowd and his own winning of the gold medal at those games. And it serves a picture for us, friends, of what spiritual life is like, that there is a way that you can look back which hinders you, which slows you down, which destroys zeal and and passion in the present. I want you to think about what what is it that, that Paul needed to forget when he said, forgetting what's behind. Let me put a, point out a few things. I think, first of all, most obviously, he had to forget his past sins. Of all things in the Christian life which are most likely to stop you running hard after Jesus, the most likely of all is a heaviness due to guilt and shame over what you have done in the past. This is where... Legalism is a false solution where people say, if you obey these rules, these laws, then you'll be clean before God. But what people discover as soon as they try and, 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 and save themselves that way is that their legalistic efforts don't atone. They don't cover up. They don't wipe away the guilt and the shame. And actually, friends, the only way you experience guiltlessness before God is when you have faith in Jesus and his death on the cross, his blood shed for you. But even if you believe that, you can get caught up, can't you, in cycles of rehearsing and playing back the things that you have done. I've known believers who've walked in seasons of real heaviness and doubt and even misery in their Christian life because they can't let go of the past. Even though they're not repeating often the same things, they just can't let go of what they've done and and the sense of shame. And the wonderful thing about what Paul's saying here is that, friend, you are permitted to forget. Billy Graham was famed for saying, there's one thing I can do which God cannot do. People would pause and be like, how dare you say that? And then he'd say, I can remember my past sins. Because the Bible says God forgets them. Now, if God forgets them, Do you realize that you have permission to forget your past sins? When you have dealt with them, when you've come to Jesus and repented of them, you have permission to never think about them again. Unless, of course, it's to bring about more gratitude and joy. God, look what you saved me from. What a celebration. But never to feel the heaviness of them. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to do as a Christian because really... It's about how powerful you think the cross of Jesus Christ is. If you sit in your guilt and shame, then you think that you need to add to the cross as some kind of... You have to do your penance. You have to pay the price. You have to, you have to in some way, add to what Jesus has done for you. But you know what? The, it's, in, it's, a, it's a surprise, but it's also true that the Christian who is most free, who is most forgetful of what they've done wrong, is the one who brings most glory to Jesus because they're saying, your death alone is what covers my sin. 
I think he had to forget his past sins. Here's another thing I think he had to forget. I think he had to forget his past hurts. Paul had reason to be hung up by the ways that people had attacked him. He was attacked by the Jews. You can read the story of his consistent efforts to reach his own people, the Jews, and their consistent denial of of him and of Jesus Christ. He was attacked by the Gentiles, the very people that Jesus had called them to reach. In other words, anyone who was not a Jew. And again and again, he experiences beatings, stonings, uh, riots at the hands of the Gentiles. But you know what? To top it off, Paul was also attacked by Christians. He was beset by Christians who had weird ambitions or problems with him or reasons for criticizing him. And again and again, Paul had reason to curl up in a corner and lick his wounds on account of all the things that had happened to him. Now, I, I think this is really important for us to hear today because we live in a kind of therapy culture, don't we? Um, there's been a massive shift in our understanding of the human psyche, of psychology, some of it for good, some of it for bad. That when we realize all the harm that's been done to us in life, we realize there has to be some element of healing because things done to us in the past affect us and continue to affect us. But the, the dark side of the therapy culture that we live in is that people excuse their present actions based on things that have happened to them in the past. Excuse their present misery or their present ongoing struggles in areas because they blame others for what they've done to them. And do you know, the only way out that the Bible prescribes again and again is the power of forgiveness. That there is a way out of the prison that you have created for yourself when you, when you ruminate and churn over the things that people have done to you. There is a way out of that prison of self-inflicted torture when you choose before God to forgive. Sometimes that can be done in a moment, in an instant, when you say, I forgive that person or those people. Sometimes it has to be a choice you make every single time you think about what they've done to you. Maybe God is bringing to mind some past hurt even in this moment where you think, that, that, that goes through my mind a lot more often than it ought to. The trouble with ruminating on these hurts is that as you churn them over in your mind, you are not thinking about Jesus and his goodness, are you? I don't think it's possible to to think and dwell on past hurts and the goodness of God at one and the same time unless you're appropriating the goodness of God to cover up the past hurts. Paul had to forget his sin. He had to forget his past hurt. I think he also, surprisingly, had to forget his successes in life. He had experienced extraordinary success as he'd moved through his Christian life and also through his life in Judaism before that. He's been telling us about that. He was a man who attained to the highest levels. And here, he, by a certain point in his life, certainly towards the end of his life, Paul could look back on his missionary journeys across the Mediterranean throughout the Roman Empire and, said, and say that the gospel has, has spread everywhere I've gone. You know, he said of Asia Minor, which is where Turkey is these days, that the gospel has completely spread across Asia Minor. What he meant was that he planted churches in all the key places everywhere. This is a guy who looked at his own life 
and said, I, and could say honestly that I have had immense and incredible success under the favor of God as a believer. But Paul did not dwell on his past successes. You feel it here, don't you? He says, not that I've already attained this. He says, one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I find one of the most moving passages that depict his mindset is in 2 Timothy, which is the final letter that he writes before he's executed. So there's a real poignancy in that letter. And he's writing to Timothy, his, his sort of younger protege. And he can say kind of at the same time, on the one hand, he says, I've run the race, I've finished the race. And there's a sense of completion, a sense of satisfaction that he's fulfilled what God called him to do, his unique calling on earth. But you know, Paul can never rest in, in that kind of self-satisfaction of what he has done. Because even then he's saying to Timothy, Timothy, can you bring the books and the parchments? He wants to keep studying the scriptures because he still wants to know Jesus. He's not ready to just sit back now in, in his rocking chair until his life passes. There's an urgency always forgetting what lies behind. And I think there is nothing sadder than a Christian who says, at one point in my life, I was passionate for Jesus or I did things for God. And there's kind of satisfaction in what you used to be. Most of us are pretty young, so, but that doesn't mean you're immune from this. Some of you maybe were most passionate when you were 16 years old. And you look back with like, yeah, that was, I, was, I was going for it then. And now somehow the cares of the world have swept you up into other things. What Jesus describes as the thorns in, in the field that, that entangle and choke. And you haven't realized Jesus isn't satisfied with yesterday's passion. Forgetting what lies behind, Paul says, I put the past behind me completely. What is it that you, you need to let go of that you can live a free and passionate life now? Grace for your past. I want to think about grace for your future as well. He goes on and says, Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul had an intense focus on the future. I want you to ask, thinking about this aspect of laziness that we all struggle with from time to time, what is it in life that's most likely to make you feel lazy at any given moment? And I think it usually boils down to, to two things. On the one hand, it's when you have nothing to work towards. No goal, no um, pursuit, nothing to energize you to run hard after something. That can be one reason. The other is that you do have a goal, but you have absolutely no hope of ever attaining it. So, you know, a lot of people use the language in Korea of hitting a glass ceiling. This can be true for many women in the workplace. It can be true if you have the wrong color skin or if you come from, you have the wrong accent or whatever it is, or just, you know, something about you. You feel like you hit a glass ceiling, that you will never be promoted, that you'll never be moved into position of management or power or whatever in the workplace. And at that point, when that dawns on you, both of those things become fulfilled. On the one hand, you don't have a goal to run towards and, and also certainly no hope of ever attaining it if you do. And immediately your motivation saps, doesn't it? You feel less energized to get out of bed in the morning, less likely to, 
to go hard and to work hard and to, and to seek to be a benefit to your, your, your company. The same is true, you think about other goals in life. Think about your health goals. Some of you may well have a goal. You think, I want to be able to run this fast or I want to be able to lose this much percentage of body fat or I want to bring my blood pressure down to this range. But you've tried in the past, you've failed a million times and so you have no real hope of attaining it. So even if you have a goal, you don't really think you're going to reach it. You think, oh. And so you, eventually what happens, you, the same for all of us, you crash and burn, don't you? And you find yourself just in a feeling sorry for yourself and eating cake um, and, and just generally languishing in your health, right? Now, I want you to think about this through the frame of what it means to live the Christian life right now and what the future means for you. Think, think firstly about this question. When you think about the future with Christ, do you have something that, you're, that you feel is worth working for? A goal that's worth running towards? You know, we're reading Paul's words here. Paul is a man who had encountered Jesus Christ face to face. But he was not satisfied. He still felt that he had something that he had to run hard towards. Something in the future that was motivating him and compelling him to keep going. He calls it here, he uses the language here of the prize. Did you see it? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call. He uses the same kind of word, in the same word actually in 1 Corinthians 9. When he says, don't you know that in, in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, he says. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, the, the, the kind of olive branch that you'd put on your head, he said, which, which fades away. But we are imperishable. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. But he says, I discipline my body. He's implying that he beats his own body, not literally, but he's like disciplining himself, calling himself to a life of surrender and submission to God to keep it under control. He says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now what on earth is Paul talking about? And how much does this grip your own mind when you think about what the Christian life means? And I think the only answer is you meditate on the whole of the New Testament and all the ideas that connect here is that Paul had a sense that there was a reward that he could attain, that he could obtain from Christ, which he might forfeit if he did not run hard after Jesus, but which if he laid his life down in passionate pursuit, Jesus would bless him with this kind of reward. I don't think he's talking about eternal life itself the gift of God saving you when you become a Christian. But I think he is talking about a difference in eternity between one person and another based on things that you've done in this life. And I think a lot of Christians wrestle and struggle with this kind of idea for, for many reasons, but a couple of them are, first of all, they think, how can an action which is motivated by reward be a good action? I think it was Immanuel Kant who said that no action which is for the pursuit of reward is worthwhile or morally good. He said it had to be done for its own intrinsic good. But you know what? Jesus disagrees with Kant, unsurprisingly, time and time again. And definitely on this. Jesus even promised reward for the most mundane things like giving a, 
a cup of cold water to a person. If I, you know, every night when I go to bed, um, C always rushes off to bed ahead of me and, um, and uh, sits in bed to scroll Facebook. And I have to go back downstairs. because I, I, I always like to have a glass of water by the bedside. And then I feel this pang of conscience that C should also have one. So I have to trudge downstairs and go and get her one. And what keeps me motivated? If I said to you, if I said to you, um, oh, just love for my wife, then you'd be like, yeah, you're a good man. But if I said to you, heavenly reward, that's why I put it next to you. You'd be thinking, well, you know, I'm not so sure about that. You think there's something morally dubious about doing things for heavenly reward. But Jesus doesn't say that. And there's something wrong about us that we somehow want to be better than Jesus. So I, I don't think you need to get hung up on this stuff. You know, another thing that people struggle with about rewards is they say, I don't really understand how the idea of rewards fit with the gospel of grace, that God lavishes goodness upon us as a free gift. And you think, well, if it's free, then what, doesn't this just reintroduce a kind of, a, a kind of um, stratification or different levels in the Christian life where some people are going to receive more than others based on what they've done in life? And you think, well, doesn't that negate the grace of God, the kindness, the freeness of his gift to us? And, it, and these things can be hard to get your head around until you realize, of course, that even your best efforts in life need the grace of God to receive and accept them. Because they're like, they simply are not proportionate to, the, to his lavish goodness to us in eternity. You know, I, I give someone a glass of cold water and God gives me a city to rule over in eternity. That doesn't really go together, does it? You know, well, there's lashings of grace available, friends. It's only whether you want to receive that grace from God. So your Christian life can be crippled if you don't realize that there are things that you are called to run hard towards. Paul was motivated by this. He wanted every day to count for Jesus because he could not wait to face Jesus on the final day and for Jesus to say to him, well done. Well done. You ran hard after me. He wants to receive what he called there in 1 Corinthians, the imperishable wreath. In other words, an eternal inheritance that won't fade or spoil. He talks about it in 2 Timothy as being a crown. I don't pretend to fully understand these things. I was flicking through a bunch of systematic theologies, which are big books, usually about 900 to 1,000 pages long, that are meant to cover pretty much everything in the Christian life. And I went to the subject indexes to look for the subject rewards. And you know, most of them don't even mention it. I think these guys don't really understand, and I don't understand. But there's something in this, isn't there? The friend, there is something we have to run towards. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about one star differing from another in glory. That there is a radiance that is going to mark certain believers when they enter eternity because of their devotion to Jesus in life. Does that motivate you? Does that resonate with you? And you think there is something worth running for. But then maybe you hear that and think, yes, but then your next reaction is, that may be true, but I'm the kind of person who will fail. I failed up to now. And I don't really feel any hope of change. And so you find yourself paralyzed and crippled in cycles of frustration with yourself and even despair in day-to-day life. 
So the future is not so much a motivator to you, but rather a, a source of condemnation. You think, I will get saved. I am saved, but just by the skin of my teeth. I think what's at stake here, what's the issue here, is friends that we haven't understood the love of God as Father to us. If Jesus was given to us by the Father to pour out his blood for us, and doesn't that tell you that the Father is for you? And if he's for you, it means that even your most meager and weak efforts to please him, he receives with absolute delight. Just this morning, I was um, trying to go over the message, and I I have these handwritten sides of of paper here, and two of them were missing. And uh, I I quickly found one of them. It was lying on on the floor and crumpled up, and I, I thought, I know who this is. This is the mark of my daughter, who loves to play with things on my desk. But one of them was still missing. I was like, Isla, come here. And she came through, and I said to her, Isla, you see this? Where's the other one? And I thought, she'll never be able to answer this because she you know, she's not really paying attention. But she said to me, it's in the cupboard. I was like, well, what cupboard? And then she pointed at the drawer on my desk. And sure enough, as I opened the drawer, there was the fourth sheet of paper that was missing to make the complete sermon. And I co- covered in pencil marks because she'd been drawing all over it as well. And uh, do you know, what, what did I feel in that moment? Part of me was frustrated with her, but then actually, overwhelmingly, I was so happy that my little girl's growing up, and she remembered where she put something. You know, something as simple as that, and she could explain to me. And she's two, but she could tell me where it was. And I think the Christian life is like that. The friend, yeah, most of us, what we do, what we're going to attain in this life, we're, we're not going to do as much as we'd like to do, and we're probably going to be a little bit embarrassed when we, when we hold our, our stuff up before God on the final day. But God is a loving Father. And this is why you can have hope, that He not only wants to receive what you've done in Christ's name, He does it with fatherly delight. So it's not only grace for your past, putting the past behind you, it's grace for your future, that you, could, you have something you can run hard towards. Do you realize that? And know, expect that the Father's going to be delighted with you if you do. Which brings us to the final thing. There is grace for your now. If all of this is true that we've been talking about, what should your present look like? What should your day-to-day life look like in the light of all this? And really... I want to ask you, because I think different Christians will answer this question very differently. How much effort do you think is needed to live the Christian life, to be a disciple of Jesus? How much work is needed? This is hugely important for you to answer that question because you need a moment of self-reflection to think about your assumptions. Have you assumed that there isn't, that God doesn't call you to, to a life of hard, strenuous labor for Jesus. Because I think if you've assumed that, then I, I want to tell you now, I don't think you, you've understood what Paul's saying here. A lot of people don't think that it's appropriate to talk about the effort that we need to engage in in the Christian life. And I'll I tell you some reasons why they think that. 
Some simply because, some, some don't want to make the effort simply because they have no will or desire. At some point, your passion was sapped and you have no will or desire to, to call your life to something higher. And Jesus, I think, would warn you. He speaks to those in the book of Revelation who, who are lukewarm and speaks tenderly but firmly. But friend, you don't want to stay in that place where you are not willing to give your life to Jesus with, and to engage in, in, in this kind of strenuous desire to pursue him. Some people think of this kind of effort or exertion and they say, listen, any, any call towards full-tilted, passionate running after Jesus is just legalism. And you think the only growth that's needed in the Christian life is the automatic growth that comes by the work of the Spirit in you. That it's kind of, it just happens all by itself as you passively rest into the, into the, the grace of God and the love of God. And that, that may be something you thought, that if anyone tells you to work harder or run faster, you think, no, that's legalism. I'm meant to always be in a serene state of just cruising through life. And I think that's mistaken. Some of you don't react to the language of you know, hard work because you're just tired out from running well in the past. And you look back and at some point you crashed and you, you, disillusionment hit. Or maybe you didn't attain the things that you wanted to attain in life. Now, I want to bring you back and summon you back because I think this is where this is really practical, friends, that all of us ought to be walking out of this room with a renewed vigor and determination today. All of us. I found um, this diagnostic from Tim Keller really helpful on this. He was actually talking about prayer, but I think it applies to every aspect of the Christian life, where he asked people, imagine that your soul, your, your life, is a boat with oars and a sail. And then there are four questions you can ask. First of all, are you sailing? Which means... That you're experiencing the grace of God in, in sort of answered prayer, in ease, um, a joy in day-to-day life, a sense of things moving rapidly, that you are achieving things for God, there's fruitfulness in your life, and um, that there's a sense that God's really with you. And every day is, is, is full of zeal and joy and, and passion. And you see people around you being affected by the work that's going on in your life. Some of you know exactly what that feels like, and some of you are in that season right now. Are you sailing is the first question. Then there's the second question. Well, maybe, are you rowing? Are you rowing? Which means that you are, you're not necessarily feeling that ease that comes by the power of God's Spirit blowing in your sails. You're doing what you need to do. You've got your hands on the oars, and you're pulling hard. You're serving God. You're engaging in prayer. But sometimes you feel like you're doing it in the dark. That you're not, you can't, you, you've got doubts that are afflicting you. But you keep going because you know what obedience to God looks like. Every Christian has been in those seasons. Then the third question is, are you, are you drifting? It means that you have the same kind of situation that's going on with the person rowing where there's a kind of, Doubt and darkness come, but instead of doing what's right, you've let go of the oars and you've 
you become just passive. You let your life drift. And then the fourth question is, are you sinking? Which is where some people eventually, usually from drip, drifting, they, they completely stop in the, in the Christian life and they just plunge under the surface. And the heart becomes totally numb to the things of God. Passion is gone. And there's you know, no recognizable faith anymore. I want you to just ask yourself even now, who are you in that, in that metaphor? Are you sailing? Are you rowing? Are you drifting or are you sinking? Now ask this. What place does work have in the Christian life? How are you called to strenuous effort? Because I think it's, it's true that you are always called to exert yourself for Jesus. And sometimes... You'll be, you'll be rowing. Where you don't feel the fullness of God's favor in your life and his presence and the wind in your sails. But you must keep going. Because there will be seasons when you feel like you're sailing again. And, and answered prayers are coming rapidly. And there's joy and there's fruitfulness on your, on your life again. But even when you're sailing, you are working. If you've ever been sailing, you know that it requires constant, unwavering attention because you are constantly paying attention to the direction of the wind. You're constantly setting your sail at the right angle, the right tension. You're, you're steering the boat so it's in the right direction. All these things require attention and effort. And friend, I want you to realize that this is what Paul is calling us to here. When he describes his own spiritual life, there is nothing passive here at all. He uses two really important words in this passage. The one of them is there that's translated, I press on. He says it twice. Once in verse 12, he says, I press on to make it my own. Then verse 14, I press on toward the goal. And the word he uses was a, a military term that was used, for example, if you, had, if you had two armies go face to face and one of them picks up, turns tail and, and flies away and runs away, if the pursuing army is going hard after them to catch them, this was the word that they used. I press on. I'm in vigorous pursuit. It's actually a violent word. And because of that, I think it reminds me so much of when Jesus says of John the Baptist that he was a violent man and that the, the kingdom is inherited by violent men. He doesn't mean physically violent. He means people who have a vigorous, passionate spirit to do God's will and to obey him. Paul used this exact same word when he was describing his old life as a Pharisee pursuing Christians in order to persecute them. He says, this same kind of zeal, in other words, that marked me when I was running from town to town to catch and pursue and persecute Christians, that's the zeal that he has now when he says, I press on to, to attain the knowledge of Christ and the prize of this upward call. Can you see? There is never a sense of slack in his life. Like the, bow on an, like the string on a bow and arrow, he's always taught with attention as he's ready to run after Jesus. He uses another word here, which is, is, is translated here as straining. To, uh, I press on, he says, toward the goal of the prize of the upper call. And he says, uh, where is it? Straining forward to what lies ahead. 
And the language, this word straining forward was, means leaning forward, arms outstretched, almost like you're ready to fall over. You're, you're leaning so hard. It's the image of runners in a race, isn't it? He's using kind of athletics metaphor here where someone is about to cross the finishing line. And you notice that runners will often dip because they want their chest and neck to cross the line because they are reaching forward. My favorite moment in the, um, in the Rio Olympics from last year was when uh, Shawnee Miller, the Bahaman, how do you say it, Bahamian, Bahaman, the lady from the Bahamas, who was running the 400-meter race against Alison Felix, who's the U.S. runner, who's practically athletics royalty. I mean, she has won so many medals. And she was in the lead right up to the finishing line when Shawnee Miller tripped. Do you remember this on the news? She tripped up, and as she tripped and stumbled, <laughs> she went flat on her face, but her neck went in front of Alison Felix, and she, she won the most undignified gold medal <laughs> in the history of athletics. But she won. When Paul says, straining forward to what lies ahead, is that kind of eagerness that he's talking about here. It means that every faculty of your being is engaged with this desire to live for Jesus. Because you love him. Think about it in terms of mind, heart, and will, the various dimensions of your person. Your mind is engaged because in the cold light of day, when you think it through, you know what is really important in life. Even if at times you don't feel it, you know what's important. You make those calculations in the cold light of day, and you plan to do the right thing. That's what it means to have your mind engaged. You constantly want to use it to learn more about Jesus. To have your heart engaged means that you're more and more stirring yourself to love God with the passionate zeal. All the way through the Bible, God commends people who have zeal. It's not a word we very often use these days, but it's a kind of violent passion. Sometimes it gives birth to real violence, but it is zeal that this kind of gut level passion that's like a fire in your belly. I don't think you could have met, spent any time with Paul without thinking he is the most zealous man I've ever met. Mind, heart, and friends also will. That for you, discipleship after Jesus means you are making decisions every day to choose him, to choose obedience to him to choose the knowledge of him. Even at times when you don't feel like it, but you choose him. You are rowing. You are engaging every fiber of your being to go after Jesus. I don't think God calls us to anything less. When you think about what the highest call is in the Christian life, isn't it to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You know, when you love something like that, there is no part of your being that isn't touched that isn't summoned to full surrender. Maybe you're not a Christian. And maybe in this you hear something, you think, wow, I've, there's something worth living for in Christianity. Maybe you've scratched around for purpose in life and you've realized that often the things that you run after 
actually seem quite vacuous at the end of the day. They don't really feel worthwhile. They feel somewhat futile. And friends, I think it's right that you look at Christianity and think, yes, this is, this is a purpose worth living for. But before you can run hard after Jesus, like I'm describing here, one thing must be true of you. When Paul began, he says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The first thing, the first thing is always that you must belong. That Jesus must lay hold of you as you come to him and give your life to him. When you belong, then you can run after him. And I want to encourage you, maybe you think, I want this. I want a life that is lived on purpose, that is lived with a mission in mind and was lived for the glory of Jesus. But first, friend, you must come and lay, lay your life down and, and ask, Jesus, I want to belong to you. It's what it means to become a Christian. For those of you, friends, who are Christians, most of us, maybe you're aware, as we've been looking at Paul's life, that you know that you're not running full tilt. And you want to leave this room having had dealings with God. You want to say, God, I want to commit and consecrate my life to you in a fresh way. Maybe it's the past that's the problem. You need to deal with the past. Maybe it's the future. You don't know what you're running for, but most likely of all, your present is not marked by this zeal, by this urgency, by this full effort and strenuous effort. And friend, we need to call out to God that he'll, t- he'll grip our hearts again, don't we? I think Jesus wanted passionate disciples. I think he wanted disciples who in the light of all that he's done for us, would not consider anything too big to give up for him or any effort too difficult to exert for him. Can you stand with me? I want us to pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us examples, men and women, Lord, through history, but also especially this man Paul, of what it looks like to be a disciple who is holding nothing back. And I pray, Lord, that you come and take hold of us in a fresh way today. That we'd walk out of here with a renewed will and determination to follow you. And with vigor, with passion. Because you've taken hold of us. Because your love for us is beyond question. Because you delight in every sacrifice and every ounce of effort exerted for the glory of your Son. So come, we pray, Lord. Change us even on the spot. Amen.